today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR, pop, uh, pop, uh, Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. Uh, easy for me to say. Uh, and talk about this issue as well as a few others, which uh, has made us question where we are and why we do what we do. And perhaps this is something to do with the global pi- uh, pandemic. But Naomi Osaka withdraws from the French Open, uh, says it's the best thing for her well-being, uh, talking about depression and the pressures of competing uh, and such. And uh, And when you hear some of the questions being asked at the French Open, you have to wonder, um, what is going on in today's world? Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman. Alyssa PR, she is with us now. Alyssa, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, Scott, and hope you're doing well, too. Uh, let's start this conversation with Naomi Osaka withdrawing from the French Open. Um, are, are you surprised we're talking about this so much? Uh, you know, I, it's great that we're talking about this in mental illness and depression and such, but, man, uh, the pressures to for her to stay and to answer these questions, it just seems bizarre. Well, it seems bizarre in that, listen, as a communicator, the first thing you do when you have a client that's going to face the media is that you prepare for the worst. You, depending on who the interviewer is, um, whether they're nice or they're, or they're, they have an agenda, you make sure that your client is prepared because you know that what the media does is they don't report on good news. What they want to do is dig up something with the bad news. So, you know, there's a couple things at play here. When this news first came out, uh, apparently she did this unilaterally, Naomi Osaka. She put it out on her on her Twitter and said, I'm not going to do post, um, post-game interviews anymore. It's just not the way I want to operate. She didn't really consult her team. She didn't really consult her po- sponsors. And the way that the Roland Garro uh, organization found out about it was basically from this tweet. So suddenly, you know, all hell breaks loose, so to speak. And here's, here's what should have happened. Number one, there should have been a conversation between the two of them that said, okay, I don't want to do this. Can we work this out between us? And this would have never, ever hit the headlines. But by making it public, then you absolutely change domains. You absolutely change the rules of the road, and then you have to adapt. Now, should Roland Garros, should they, you know, have fined her $15,000? Well, if you don't show up, well, that's that, and that's the rules. No, they could have avoided that. They could have had a backdoor conversation and, and really delved into why is this happening and what can we do to meet you halfway or how can we work together? Instead, it became a huge incident, which made everybody... Um, on the tennis side, at least look bad because this is really a mental health issue. And mental health is really uh, not something to be trifled with, that it's something that we really have to, that organizations have to really take a breath, take a beat and say, okay, if this is the case, how do we work together? And that none of that happened. So, you know, from a communications perspective, I think that, you know, there were some basic premises here that could have been followed and really had the Tennis Association, you know, consulted their own communications or their own PR people, a lot of it could have been avoided. So what's the lesson here? What's learned here? The lesson is don't do that knee-jerk reaction. Don't shoot from the hip if you don't want to. 
And shooting from the hip, like, you know when you get angry at somebody and then your first thought is maybe yeah. irrational and you're, you're just so upset? Well, that's what happened here. That is exactly what happened here. And it did not need to happen. So take a sober second thought. Take a breath. Gather the team. Go over this. What is behind this? Yes, this is flouting the rules, but maybe there's another story. Always do your homework. Always information gather. Don't make decisions based on um, only one side of the story. And then that way, once you gather all your information, it sounds simple, right, Scott? Like, it does sound simple. Gather all your information and make a decision. So you always make a better decision when you're better informed. Uh, other players appear to be supporting her and have been critical of the French media for questions asked. Well, you know, they are. They are critical. And then when, you know, I, re- I recently read of, a, um, of an interview that happened with uh, Coco Goff, and they yeah. basically said, you know, do you compare yourself to Serena or Venus? Is it because you're black or is it because you're also American? <laughs> Honestly, you yeah. can't make this stuff up. Yeah. And you wonder why. I mean, I've been watching that Netflix show uh, about Formula One. Yeah. And the reporters are brutal. And everybody says it's just part of the game. So, yes, there are some um, players that have been very sympathetic. But before the full story came out, you heard what they had to say. And what they had to say was, this is part of the job. And people aren't going to know about us nor our achievements if we don't do media. So that's her decision, but it isn't necessarily ours. And the other part of it, too, is that unfortunately when I was reading the New York Times article was, you know what, she hasn't played that well on clay to begin with. And she also doesn't play, Naomi Osaka <laughs> doesn't play that well on grass, which is which is Wimbledon. So then all sorts of other narratives start seeping in to, you know, trying to obfuscate the truth. So it's unfortunate, actually, how this all panned out. Is this a, a conversation we only have in a pandemic or after a pandemic? I hope not. I hope it's not. I hope that this is a conversation that we feel open about talking about, uh, that we have more empathy, that we treat it with more grace. And if somebody is reaching out with that, with a, a big ask like that, you know, do your homework, follow the basic principles, and then everybody can meet, hopefully meet um, into a happy medium. All right, let's talk about uh, the the public relations of AstraZeneca and getting vaccines and such. Uh, NASI announces today uh, that they're okay with the mixing of doses and such. Uh, but I don't know if you've noticed this at all, um, but there has not been a NASI press conference uh, in a few weeks since that blow-up happened. It was Health Canada that was responsible for delivering this information today. What do you think about that? Um, what do I think? Well, I think that it's, uh, I took AstraZeneca, Scott, and I have to tell you, it, it really, I'm, I'm upset about this whole thing. I think this was just a huge mess on behalf of messaging and the government and the health of Canadians. You know, I was at 10 weeks and I got my shot, really should have waited 12 weeks, but I didn't because, you know, hurry up, hurry up get the vaccine because this batch is expiring and who knows when the next batch is going to come. So I get it. I understand that NASI was uh, looking at a, uh, not a large scale study, but from what I understand, a smaller scale study about combining the vaccines. 
And then they're saying, well, yeah, if you had AstraZeneca, go ahead and take something else. And honestly, honestly, I just feel that I, as a Canadian, wasn't provided enough information. They should not have been pushing for us to get this second dose as quickly as they could. I really could have waited a few more weeks to amp up my protection. And no wonder Nasty doesn't hold a press conference. Well, of course not, Scott, because they would absolutely be grilled grilled on their ineffective communications, their inability to actually make sure that they had cohesive communications before they too, they too also shot from the hip. They are the ones that should be blamed for putting the doubt in the minds of Canadians that said, you know what, the mRNA uh, vaccines are preferable rather than telling everybody, go get the one that's uh, available to you to get a shot in the arm. That whole thing is a PR mess. Uh, where do you think Canadians sit on this now? Uh, obviously, they were extending the, the, the dates of the AstraZeneca, so it doesn't have to all be uh, consumed by the end of last month. Um, but now, obviously, Nassi out with this that, uh, you know, yeah, you can use, you can get to. Do you think people are going to be hesitant to get the second AZ? Um, being given the chance, I think that people are understanding that if you take Moderna or Pfizer, that you will have a more serious reaction to the shot. A lot of people have. I mean, everybody experiences different symptoms when it comes to the shot anyways, no matter what you, no matter what you take. I think there's more serious reaction. Not serious, but I think there's more amplified reactions um, if you take one of the mRNA ones because it's really your first dose, I guess. Um, what do Canadians think about AstraZeneca? I think they've all had doubts, but if you look at... And I think we've said this before. I mean, if you've ever been on birth control, you look on the back of a package, you would never be on birth control. Yeah, yeah. So I think that was as long as everybody gets vaccinated and I think people are going to have different levels of protection. And I think that some of them offer better protection against variants. I, I just think the most important thing right now is get the shot, get your second shot, and then let's try and get to some semblance of normality. All right, can't let you go without talking about uh, just this absolutely disgusting story coming out of Ham, uh, Kamloops in regard to residential uh, the residential school there. 215 children's remains found. Uh, and, and again, this was suspected at this school. Uh, and, and of course, with, uh, with ground penetrating radar, they've been able to, to scan the area. How can they not go to every single site of a residential school and, and not do the same thing? You know, the one question that I ask myself, and maybe you have too, Scott, is do you recall ever seeing the story of residential schools when you went to school? You know, Alyssa, it is so incredible that you bring that up because I'm having this discussion with my kids at the dinner table last night. I have learned more about Canada's indigenous population in the last 10 years of my life than I ever learned in the first 50. It's it's just amazing. And, and comparing it to them, uh, they get it a lot. They get it all the time. They talk about that. But I, I said the same thing yesterday. You know, none of this. I don't remember studying any of this in school. We never studied the 60s scoop. We never studied anything about these residential schools. Maybe it was glossed over. We were basically, our history was essentially whitewashed. And yeah. that's why our, our uh, age group is, is incredulous that this ever happened. It is horrific. It is beyond a tragedy. Can you imagine... 
the RCMP or whatever official coming to your house and saying, okay, we're going to take your kids now. Yeah. And the way, and the Catholic Church has a huge reckoning with this. Let's See that's a, that, and there. that's been my that's been my point, and it will be in the next interview that we have uh, coming up after you after two o'clock. We got Dr. Uh, Don Lavelle Harvard from uh, president from the Ontario Natives Women's Association, and she we were talking to her yesterday, and she was saying that once these schools closed, all of these records went to the Vatican. So even if you're going to try to identify these people, the Vatican's got to be involved. So they were the ones that were running this school. Why is this falling on Canadian shoulders, as it should, but also not on the shoulders of the Catholic Church, who are the only ones not to apologize here? Well, I think that, first of all, I'm glad you're having this spokesperson on, and I hope you can continue to keep talking with her because... Honestly, that's how you provide history, that's how you provide context, and that's how we all, you know, learn um, about this situation. It's not, I can't, it's trivializing saying it's a situation, but honestly, Trudeau can do the right thing here. I mean, apparently this has been passed on and on through different prime ministers from different parties, and yes, he put out a statement, but more needs to be done. And I think somebody finally has to say, okay, we are going to have a reckoning here. We can no longer brush this under the carpet. And then we have to treat this, this ugly chapter with the, the deference and reverence that it deserves, that it absolutely deserves. So if you wonder why, as the average person, you wonder why, um, we have not uh, paid our due to the indigenous peoples of, the, of this country, and you wonder really where it all stems from. You know, you have to look back at this. You have to look at this in the face. And from a public relations point of view, there needs to be apologies, and there needs to be action for, in order for the apologies to actually have any weight. And, you know, I genuinely get the feeling Canadians want this solved. They want this rectified. They want it fixed and then move on. And you, you get the feeling with this story in regard to the residential schools and, and these unmarked graves, this is the tip of the iceberg. If there, now, mind you, the Kamloops school was, from what I understand, the largest with 500 students at its peak. But but still, there's there's 130, I think, of these across the nation. Y- you have to think this has happened more than once. The last one closed when in 1996. Yeah, 96, 97. Well, yeah. I mean, think think about that. You're right, Scott. This is the tip of the iceberg, and we have to go back to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We have to go back to the recommendations. We have to ask why hardly any of them have actually been enacted. You know, what is that all about? Why are we dragging our feet? Why don't we just put this in this this into the light as opposed to pretending that it never happened? There's lots of questions to be answered. And and I just hope I hope that this story doesn't run the regular gamut of a news cycle, Scott, because we know what happens, right? The, The spotlight shines bright. It shines hot. We're all talking about it. And then we're never talking about it again. So what we need to do is to keep the conversation going, and we need to keep talking about it, because this is something that, as Canadians, many can't believe that it actually happened, but it did happen. So from the top down, through the educational curriculum, um, things have to be uncovered, they have to be explored, and the stories need to be told. What's different this time? How much impact does this story have? 
children, Scott. Children, yeah. young children. Yeah. Oh my God. Young as I three. Mean, I woke up this morning as three. I woke up this morning and still reading about this, and I just feel sick. Yeah. yeah. I just feel sick, and and you go through the social feeds, and yes, everybody is putting up about you know two hundred and fifteen, and I'm so glad you're doing a minute of silence. Actually, CHML um, at, at two fifteen, um, and and people are. I think a lot of people are incredulous, and I think a lot of people don't Canadians don't understand that we are settlers. We are not the indigenous peoples of this land, and that is something really hard to wrap your head around, especially if you've been living as, and you're your second generation or your third generation, and you have uh, you know ancestors that consider themselves Canadian. Well, you know what? No, we're not. So we do, there is a big reckoning to come, and this is a difficult, difficult subject to unravel, but I think we have to look to our Indigenous and our First Nations leaders on what to do, on how to approach it, and how to create action. Again, you weave a pandemic into all of this where it seems society's perception are just generally, society's perception is just generally changing. Uh, it, it's going to be fascinating to see, much like how the George Floyd video changed the discussion with Black Lives Matter, how much this is going to change the discussion when it comes to our relations with indigenous communities. You know what? I just don't want this to be the flavor of the day. I don't want, yeah. you know, I mean, Pride Month is coming, right? So everybody is company, everybody's everything is is doing their pride messages, their colorful messages, et cetera, et cetera. Black Lives Matter, huge, you know, outrage. Um, you know, I think that the NAACP is, is doing great work, which is who I look to um, with respect to these, these, these type of things. But, you know, the thing is, how do you prevent this just from becoming the flavor of the day? How do you create systemic change? And this is going to be the same thing with the story out of Kamloops. Honestly, this is the tip of the iceberg. There are still Indigenous peoples living in this country that still have a boil water advisory. I mean, good grief. How many CBC stories do we need to see when we see footage of brown water coming out of a tap? Unless there is some sense of systemic change or some initiation of, of systemic change, these are just stories that will continue to be told. It'll be fascinating how much of an impact uh, this has on society and where this story ends up going. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert, Alyssa PR. As always, Alyssa, thank you so much for the time. Be well. And you too, Scott. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, the headline uh, certainly will uh, upset a few Canadians, I'm guessing. Air Canada granted special stock awards and $10 million in bonuses while negotiating government bailout. To talk more about all of this, Michael Manjuris is with us, professor at the Ted Rogers School of Management, Ryerson University, and is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, thank you, and uh, good afternoon. So how do you position this, Michael? No one wants to hear of bonuses being paid while others are laid off, or especially if there's government support involved. Is it this simple? <laughs> I think the simple answer is this is brutal communication strategy. Uh, yeah. The optics are just horrible. Now, they've, they've done nothing illegal or wrong from, uh, you know, from a legal standpoint. These, uh, there's about $20 million in bonuses that was approved by the Board of Air Canada which um, was paid out and decided upon before 
I don't like the, the term bailout package. Before the loan agreement and equity position that uh, the government of Canada took with Air Canada, before that was all, you know, that negotiation was all finalized. So these, these bonus decisions were made before that. But it's horrible optics. And, I, and I'm not, you know, as a, as a management prof, I'm just not sure what they were thinking. I mean, to pay this out at a, at a time where we have pandemic where, you know, you've, you've just laid off more than 70% of your workforce where you have a 90% reduction in your revenue just to me doesn't make, you know, good business sense. Uh, do things change now that this help has been offered? You said these were all decisions, decisions that were made beforehand. Would this, would these decisions now change or should they? Well, well again, morally, should they change? Yes. I, I think that, um, there's a moral obligation in terms of, you know, what the company should do, but also what these exe- executives should do. I mean, they're, they're grabbing some significant money at a time when other people have been laid off and are trying to put food on their table. Um, you know, and, and I've, I've read sort of the reports put out by the board, you know, their, their official response by saying, well, you know, they're trying to keep good people in management positions so that they can position Air, Air Canada moving forward you know, to basically uh, restart operations when things get back to normal. And I understand that. That's all good and, and, and great. But then you structure your bonus system so they get paid when that happens and not before. Uh, there's ways they could have done it better. Um, I just, as I said earlier, I just think the optics are horrible. Uh, they also justified it by saying that a lot of their execs took pay cuts uh, at the beginning of all of this. But again, what's the sense of asking someone to take a pay cut if you're just going to reward them with a bonus afterwards? Well, and that's exactly right. The pay cuts you're talking about, are the, the two senior executives actually took no salary for three months and then 50% salary for the remainder of 2020. Um, and then their salary returned in January, February. And then other executives had sort of similar scaled back salary um, um, uh, acceptance as well. But the problem is, God, the problem here is, is that's all fine and dandy, but the truth is other people lost their jobs, which means they lost everything. And to then, as you say, sort of reverse all of that, okay, that was the sacrifice the executives made, but then you reverse it all by paying them a lump sum bonus anyway. So as I said at the very beginning, Air Canada and their board has done nothing illegal. But this is just terrible optics, and it's, I don't think a very good way, you know, in terms of managing the perception of the company um, you know, to both employees and customers. And that's who they've got to be thinking about as we move forward and this pandemic comes to an end. This seems like Communications 101 uh, here, Michael. How could this not have landed across somebody's desk? How could somebody not have discussed this? I, I, that is the, you know, $62 million question. I really don't know. Uh, to me, this is not, you know, communications 101. This is your basic English communications class from grade school or high school. I mean, hmm. it, it was very, it's very clear to me that somebody should have seen ahead of time that this was not going to, you know, fare well uh, out in the public and to have at least put a communication strategy together or better yet, go back and say, all right, what we're going to do is we're going to reconstruct or redesign your compensation package in a different manner so that you are going to get a bonus, you know, once everything has successfully been reintroduced back to normal. And sure, we want to keep you, and we'll make that a very lucrative bonus, but basically not until that happens. And that would include, for example, rehiring many of the people that are laid off and successfully retaining them so that Air Canada, when it comes back into full operation, you know, can hit 
you know, for lack of a better term, can hit the pavement or the runway running so that it can compete when, you know, this pent-up demand is released back into the travel industry. That would have made more sense. What does it say that they did not do that, that they did not take that into account? Um, they did. They were, to be polite, they were unaware uh, of the importance of the sacrifice made by, um, you know, their blue-collar workers, uh, their technicians, their pilots, uh, their middle managers, uh, individuals who basically had no choice because they were laid off, but many of which were loyal to the company and, and have, have stayed loyal. In other words, they may have found temporarily other forms of employment, but their goal is to return to Air Canada when things get back to normal. I think they took that for granted, or they appear to have taken that for granted. And by being unaware of that, they may find that they lose some very, very good employees. And typically, good employees go to competition. And yet, they were aware enough to announce that they were going to be taking cuts. Once again, as I said at the very beginning, none of this makes any sense. It's terrible yeah. optics. So uh, where does this go from here? Because obviously now the government is going to have to answer to this because, uh, you know, the way the headline states. And what, and is this just, is this bad management on their part, bad uh, communications rather, uh, or, or is it is it bad to, to even uh, administer these at this point, as you were saying, or, or, or are we just looking too deep into this and, and you know, either way this news is going to come out and it's going to make Air Canada look bad? First of all, I don't think it's it's the government that's the problem here. I think it's the board and, and the senior management of Air Canada. I think the government negotiated a very smart deal with Air Canada to help them out. As I say, I don't like the term bailout. The government said, we'll, you know, we'll back a loan for you, but you've got to pay us back. And then they said, and to give you extra money, we'll take an equity position in Air Canada at a time when the stock value of Air Canada was low. Mm-hmm. So the likelihood of the government, which means the taxpayer, making money on that equity position is good. Yeah, yeah. So, so to me, the government did a good thing. This is about Air Canada's management, and I think they're the ones that made the mistake. The right thing to do at this point would be to revisit these, these bonuses and restructure them in a very similar way to what I mentioned. Don't pay them out until we see sort of a return to normality, including the reinstatement and, and the, the senior executive's ability to reinstate many of these employees that they've had in the past. Michael Mangeris with us, professor at the Ted Rogers School of Management, Ryerson University, talking about Air Canada granting special stock awards uh, while negoti- or prior to negotiating a government bailout. This while, obviously, uh, other workers uh, were laid off. Michael, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Same to you, Scott. Thanks again for having me. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Over the course of the global pandemic, uh, it's affected us in many ways. Um, you know, a lot of people, when we started, thought we could just eat and drink our way out of this. And then uh, over a year in, and you've got uh, the COVID weight on uh, that you have to lose, the COVID 10 pounds. Uh, and, you know, we've heard of uh, drinking up, uh, the use of cannabis up, the use of pornography is up. But it appears smoking has gone down. A bit. An expert in public health and tobacco control is pointing to the COVID-19 pandemic as a factor in Canada's declining 
smoking rates. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Dr. Robert Schwartz is with us, Executive Director of the Ontario Tobacco Research Unit and Professor with the Dal Atlanta School of Public Health, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. I'm just fine. I was, see, I was a little surprised to hear this because, you know, we've been hearing about how people are indulging more over the course of this pandemic, but it seems that smoking rates are down a bit. Yeah, beware how you interpret data. Yeah, okay. Smoking rates have been going down every year for quite a right. while, and it's true they're down a bit more uh, this year. We don't know exactly why, but we do know from other studies that some people have decreased their smoking and some people have increased their smoking during covid so uh, beware of the data, as you say, and again, just address this as uh, as far as the trend that was there anyway. We were seeing smoking declining, uh, and now during COVID, we've seen that rate increase? No, no, it's continued to go down, um, yeah. and maybe even a bit more. Uh, but overall, uh, the, the data shows that some people are smoking more and some people are smoking less. So I wouldn't, uh, based on the data we have right now, I wouldn't go so far as to attribute any decreases in smoking to COVID. So many have said that smoking can be a very social thing. Is that because we're out less? It may be. Um, And um, the problem is, though, that uh, many people are much more stressed, as you mentioned in your intro. Um, And uh, people people who are smokers who are stressed tend to smoke more. Um, because of that stress. Um, there are some smokers who, uh, because of COVID, understand that actually smoking is, increases their risk of getting sick and getting very sick and dying from COVID. And so those are the ones who may have stopped. How concerned are you about the, the, the public health of Canadians or even around the world coming out of this global pandemic? Well, I'm certainly concerned, as, uh, as and many of us are, about uh, people's mental health. Um, uh, um, most everybody I know is exp- uh, experiencing some anxiety, some stress, um, some depression. Um, um, and those uh, of us who are more prone uh, to these uh, challenges um, uh, have uh, seen uh, uh, even greater rates of uh, these mental health uh, challenges, and indeed substance abuse is up um, for uh, many of the substances, including alcohol and cannabis, uh, from, the, from the data that we can see. So that is concerning. You know, my hope is that uh, as we come out of this uh, time period, that uh, things will improve uh, rapidly for all. Uh, so, and that's my next question. As things open up, will this just automatically decline or will opening up make us just as anxious and you're fearful this will continue? Yeah, I don't think we know for sure. Um, I think that uh, for most people, it'll be going back to relatively normal times, becoming more social, um, interacting. And there will be some some who will have some sort of COVID uh um, a scenario whereby they uh, will be fearful of being together with people. And for most people, they'll get over that relatively quickly. But uh, I imagine that there will be some who will suffer from that for a long period of time. What do you say to those that are feeling fatigued uh, through this uh, pandemic? Obviously, things are getting brighter now because we're certainly getting vaccinated and seeing rates go down. But what are you? What do you say to those that are having difficulty with this and are reaching to things they probably shouldn't be? Yeah, you know, I'm not a clinician. I'm just a public health specialist uh, looking at data at the population level. But uh, as a as a citizen, as somebody who's 
suffering from this as much as uh, uh, some other people are. Uh, I would say, you know, be optimistic, keep the hopes up, and uh, optimists uh, have been proven always to find their way out of difficult situations. So hang in there for, for a bit more. <laughs> Many have said that, uh, you know, you can't go through something like this without, you know, for this length of time, without coming out the other end different. Uh, many said way back at the beginning, I can't wait for normal to return. And then as normal is returning, I don't know if I want the new normal. Um, do you think we are going to see change? I know you're not a behavior specialist, but do you think coming out the other end of this, we're going to be a different being? Well, I hope we'll be different in a good way, right? Yeah. I think that, uh, you know, more family time, uh, more walking, uh, being outdoors more, um, and less of the sort of craziness, I would say, what I call craziness of, uh, maybe that's not a good word, but, uh, you know, the, the buzz, the constant buzz, always being out and about, um, that'll decrease. Now, of course, you know, I'm a, I'm a 62-year-old individual, and uh, I've got young young daughters in their uh, 20s and um, uh, you know those are the folks who want to be out and about and, and, and need that and want it in different ways so you know it may be that the longer term effects of COVID are going to be greater for young people especially small children you know who um, have not benefited during this period of time from the types of social interaction that are important for their development. Dr. Robert Schwartz has been with us, Executive Director of the Ontario Tobacco Research Unit and Professor with the Dalalana School of Public Health, University of Toronto. Um, Canadians smoking less, or is that just the trend continuing? As the doctor says, you got to be careful how you interpret this data. And uh, I, I guess we don't want it to appear that we're growing more lax with this sort of thing. Do we, uh, doctor? Um, absolutely, we do not want to be more lax. We need to be more stringent. I mean, it's pretty absurd that still 15% or so of Canadians uh, smoke uh, uh, on a regular basis. Um, we've known since the 1950s uh, that this is uh, deadly and uh, makes a lot of people sick. And indeed, many more people still die from tobacco use than they do from COVID um, or any other infectious disease. So. Um, it's time, it's well past time for the government to be a lot more stringent and to get rid of the sale of tobacco at every corner store um, and to help those smokers who are addicted uh, to get off this stuff. Dr. Robert Swartz, Executive Director of the Ontario Tobacco Research Unit and Professor at the University of Toronto. Doctor, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I wanted to read you some email. We're getting tons of them in regard to the story uh, that we just did on uh, residential schools. Uh, Roy writes, this is Canada's Holocaust. Sorry, that's all that will happen. No wonder church numbers are down. Danielle writes, uh, what really chills me is also thinking of the kind of suffering these children endured before they died. Residents who survived were traumatized by the treatment. They appeared to be absolutely, there appears to be no, uh, absolutely no accountability. Thank you for addressing this and for, uh, the moment of silence. So, uh, you know, an interesting, another interesting story from Rick. He says he's 65 years old, uh, was in school in the early 60s, uh, sorry, 60s and 70s, never heard anything about the residential school system. We learned about Columbus. 
we learned about the Plains of Abraham, War of 1812, etc. My mom came from England as a child. She lived in Saskatchewan. She told me that many friends she had had, had been taken from their homes. They live near a Cree area, near a Cree reserve. I have an aunt who is native who told me stories about her experience in school. I worked with a guy now since past who was in the school and wrote a book about his life at school. Uh, they were locked down in their dorm at night. Uh, when they heard the door being unlocked, they knew something was going to, someone was going to be sexually assaulted or beaten with a thick rubber strap just for fun. It is a deep, dark secret of Canadian history which needs to be told and investigated. Native people have been treated with disdain, and yes, they have been stigmatized over the years. This needs to be investigated and made right. The Holy Catholic Church and others need to be made responsible for their actions. Uh, the RC Church holds a stronghold, such a stronghold on some people that they fail to admit their wrong. Uh, wrongdoing by the church priests abuse and now this says rick you can imagine uh just a sample of some of the emails that are uh coming in today in regard to uh the discovery in kamloops at an old residential school site the remains of 215 children the scott thompson show weekdays from noon to three on 900 chml